Chapter Seven of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Seven. After a Year. The first year of George Talboy's widowhood passed away. The deep band of crape about his hat grew brown and dusty, and as the last burning day of another August faded out, he sat smoking cigars in the quiet chambers of Fig Tree Court, much as he had done the year before, when the horror of his grief was new to him, and every object in life, however trifling or however important, seemed saturated with his one great sorrow. But the big ex-dragoon had survived his affliction by a twelvemonth, and hard as it may be to have to tell it, he did not look much the worse for it. Heaven knows what wasted agonies of remorse and self-reproach may not have racked George's honest heart, as he lay awake at nights thinking of the wife he had abandoned in the pursuit of a fortune, which she never lived to share. Once, while they were abroad, Robert Audley ventured to congratulate him upon his recovered spirits. He burst into a bitter laugh. "'Do you know, Bob,' he said, "'that when some of our fellows were wounded in India, they came home bringing bullets inside them. They did not talk of them, and they were stout and hardy, and looked as well, perhaps, as you or I. But every change in the weather, however slight, every variation of the atmosphere, however trifling, brought back the old agony of their wounds as sharp as ever they had felt it on the battlefield. I've had my wound, Bob. I carry the bullet still, and I shall carry it into my coffin." The travellers returned from St. Petersburg in the spring, and George again took up his quarters at his old friend's chambers, only leaving them now and then to run down to Southampton and take a look at his little boy. He always went loaded with toys and sweetmeats to give to the child. But for all this, Georgie would not become very familiar with his papa, and the young man's heart sickened as he began to fancy that even his child was lost to him. "'What can I do?' he thought. If I take him away from his grandfather, I shall break his heart. If I let him remain, he will grow up a stranger to me, and care more for that drunken old hypocrite than for his own father. But then, what could an ignorant, heavy dragoon like me do with such a child? What could I teach him, except to smoke cigars, and idle around all day with his hands in his pockets? So the anniversary of that thirtieth of August— upon which George had seen the advertisement of his wife's death in the Times newspaper, came round for the first time, and the young man put off his black clothes and the shabby crape from his hat, and laid his mournful garments in a trunk, in which he kept a packet of his wife's letters, her portrait, and that lock of hair which had been cut off from her head after death. Robert Audley had never seen either the letters, the portrait, or the long tress of silky hair, nor, indeed, had George ever mentioned the name of his dead wife, after that one day at Ventnor, on which he learned the full particulars of her decease. "'I shall write to my cousin Alicia to-day, George,' the young barrister said, upon this very thirtieth of August. "'Do you know that the day after to-morrow is the first of September? I shall write and tell her that we will both run down to the court for a week's shooting.' "'No, no, Bob. Go by yourself. They don't want me, and I'd rather—' Bury yourself in fig-tree court, with no company but my dogs and canaries. No, George, you shall do nothing of the kind. 
but I don't care for shooting.' "'And do you suppose I care for it?' cried Robert, with charming naivete. "'Why, man, I don't know a partridge from a pigeon, and it might be the first of April instead of the first of September for aught I care. I never hurt a bird in my life, but I have hurt my own shoulder with the weight of my gun. I only go down to Essex for the change of air, the good dinners, and the sight of my uncle's honest, handsome face. Besides, this time I've another inducement, as I want to see this fair-haired paragon, my new aunt. You'll go with me, George?' "'Yes, if you really wish it.' The quiet form his grief had taken after its first brief violence left him as submissive as a child to the will of his friend, ready to go anywhere or do anything, never enjoying himself or originating any enjoyment, but joining in the pleasures of others with a hopeless, uncomplaining, unobtrusive resignation peculiar to his simple nature. But the return of post brought a letter from Alicia Audley, to say that the two young men could not be received at the court. "'There are seventeen spare bedrooms,' wrote the young lady, in an indignant running hand. "'But for all that, my dear Robert, you can't come. For my lady has taken it into her silly head that she is too ill to entertain visitors. There is no more the matter with her than there is with me. And she cannot have gentlemen—great rough men, she says—in the house.' Please apologize to your friend, Mr. Tallboys, and tell him that Papa expects to see you both in the hunting season. My lady's airs and graces shan't keep us out of Essex for all that," said Robert, as he twisted the letter into pipe-light for his big meerschaum. I'll tell you what we'll do, George. There's a glorious inn at Audley, and plenty of fishing in the neighbourhood. We'll go there and have a week's sport. Fishing is much better than shooting. You've only to lie in a bank and stare at your line. I don't find that you often catch anything, but it's very pleasant." He held the twisted letter to the feeble spark of fire glimmering in the grate as he spoke, and then, changing his mind, deliberately unfolded it, and smoothed the crumpled paper with his hand. "'Poor little Alicia,' he said thoughtfully. "'It's rather hard to treat her letter so cavalierly. I'll keep it.' Upon which Mr. Robert Audley put the note back into its envelope, and afterward thrust it into a pigeonhole in his office desk marked important. Heaven knows what wonderful documents there were in this particular pigeonhole, but I do not think it likely to have contained anything of great judicial value. If any one could at that moment have told the young barrister that so simple a thing as his cousin's brief letter would one day come to be a link in that terrible chain of evidence, afterward to be slowly forged in the only criminal case in which he was ever to be concerned, perhaps Mr. Robert Audley would have lifted his eyebrows a little higher than usual. So the two young men left London the next day, with one portmanteau and a rod and tackle between them, and reached the straggling, old-fashioned, fast-decaying village of Audley, in time to order a good dinner at the Sun Inn. Audley Court was about three-quarters of a mile from the village, lying, as I have said, deep down in the hollow, shut in by luxuriant timber. You could only reach it by a cross-road bordered by trees, and as trimly kept as the avenues in a gentleman's park. It was a lonely place enough, even in all its rustic beauty, for so bright a creature as the late Miss Lucy Graham. But the generous baronet had transformed the interior of the grey old mansion into a little palace for his young wife, and Lady Audley seemed as happy as a child, surrounded by new and costly toys. In her better fortunes, as in her old days of dependence, Wherever she went, she seemed to take sunshine and gladness with her. 
In spite of Miss Alicia's undisguised contempt for her stepmother's childishness and frivolity, Lucy was better loved and more admired than the baronet's daughter. That very childishness had a charm which few could resist. The innocence and candor of an infant beamed in Lady Audley's fair face, and shone out of her large and liquid blue eyes. The rosy lips, the delicate nose, the profusion of fair ringlets, all contributed to preserve to her beauty the character of extreme youth and freshness. She owned to twenty years of age, but it was hard to believe her more than seventeen. Her fragile figure, which she loved to dress in heavy velvets and stiff, rustling silks, till she looked like a child tricked out for a masquerade, was as girlish as if she had just left the nursery. All her amusements were childish. She hated reading or study of any kind, and loved society. Rather than be alone, she would admit Phoebe Marks into her confidence, and loll on one of the sofas in her luxurious dressing-room, discussing a new costume for some coming dinner-party, or sit chattering to the girl with her jewel-box beside her, upon the satin cushions, and Sir Michael's presents spread out in her lap, while she counted and admired her treasures. She had appeared at several public balls at Chelmsford and Colchester, and was immediately established as the belle of the county. Pleased with her high position and her handsome house, with every caprice gratified, every whim indulged, admired and caressed wherever she went, fond of her generous husband, rich in a noble allowance of pin-money, with no poor relations to worry her with claims upon her purse or patronage, it would have been hard to find in the county of Essex a more fortunate creature than Lucy, Lady Audley. The two young men loitered over the dinner-table in the private sitting-room at the Sun Inn. The windows were thrown wide open, and the fresh country air blew in upon them as they dined. The weather was lovely. The foliage of the woods touched here and there with faint gleams of the earliest tints of autumn, the yellow corn still standing in some of the fields, in others just falling under the shining sickle, while in the narrow lanes you met great wagons drawn by broad-chested cart-horses, carrying home the rich golden store. To any one who has been, during the hot summer months, pent up in London, there is in the first taste of rustic life a kind of sensuous rapture scarcely to be described. George Tallboys felt this, and in this he experienced the nearest approach to enjoyment that he had ever known since his wife's death. The clock struck five as they finished dinner. "'Put on your hat, George,' said Robert Audley. "'They don't dine at the court till seven. We shall have time to stroll down and see the old place and its inhabitants.' The landlord, who had come into the room with a bottle of wine, looked up as the young man spoke. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Audley,' he said. "'But if you want to see your uncle, you'll lose your time by going to the court just now. Sir Michael and my lady and Miss Alicia have all gone up to the races at Chorley, and they won't be back till nigh upon eight o'clock, most likely. They must pass by here to go home.' Under these circumstances, of course, it was no use going to the court— so the two young men strolled through the village and looked at the old church, and then went and reconnoitred the streams in which they were to fish the next day, and by such means beguiled the time until after seven o'clock. At about a quarter past that hour they returned to the inn, and seating themselves in the open window, lit their cigars and looked out at the peaceful prospect. We hear every day of murders committed in the country—brutal and treacherous murders— slow, protracted agonies from poisons administered by some kindred hand, sudden and violent deaths by cruel blows, inflicted with a stake cut from some spreading oak, whose every shadow promised peace. 
in the county of which I write, I have been shown a meadow in which, on a quiet summer Sunday evening, a young farmer murdered the girl who had loved and trusted him. And yet, even now, with the stain of that foul deed upon it, the aspect of the spot is peace. No species of crime has ever been committed in the worst rookeries about seven dials that has not been also done in the face of that rustic calm, which still, in spite of all, we look on with a tender, half-mournful yearning, and associate with peace. It was dusk when gigs and chaises, dog-carts and clumsy farmers' phaetons, began to rattle through the village street, and under the windows of the Sun Inn. Deeper dusk still when an open carriage and four drew suddenly up beneath the rocking signpost. It was Sir Michael Audley's barouche which came to so sudden a stop before the little inn. The harness of one of the leaders had become out of order, and the foremost postillion dismounted to set it right. "'Why, it's my uncle!' cried Robert Audley, as the carriage stopped. "'I'll run down and speak to him.' George lit another cigar, and, sheltered by the window-curtains, looked out at the little party. Alicia sat with her back to the horses, and he could perceive, even in the dusk, that she was a handsome brunette. But Lady Audley was seated on the side of the carriage furthest from the inn, and he could see nothing of the fair-haired paragon of whom he had heard so much. "'Why, Robert!' exclaimed Sir Michael, as his nephew emerged from the inn. "'This is a surprise!' "'I have not come to intrude upon you at the court, my dear uncle,' said the young man, as the baronet shook him by the hand in his own hearty fashion. Essex is my native county, you know, and about this time of year I generally have a touch of homesickness. So George and I have come down to the inn for two or three days' fishing. George? George who? George Tallboys. What, has he come? cried Alicia. I'm so glad, for I'm dying to see this handsome young widower. Are you, Alicia? said her cousin. Then egad, I'll run and fetch him and introduce you to him at once. Now, so complete was the dominion which Lady Audley had, in her own childish, unthinking way, obtained over her devoted husband, that it was very rarely that the baronet's eyes were long removed from his wife's pretty face. When Robert, therefore, was about to re-enter the inn, it needed but the faintest elevation of Lucy's eyebrows, with a charming expression of weariness and terror, to make her husband aware that she did not want to be bored by an introduction to Mr. George Tallboy's. "'Never mind to-night, Bob,' he said. "'My wife is a little tired after our long day's pleasure. "'Bring your friend to dinner to-morrow, "'and then he and Alicia can make each other's acquaintance. "'Come round and speak to Lady Audley, and then we'll drive home.' My lady was so terribly fatigued that she could only smile sweetly, and hold out a tiny gloved hand to her nephew by marriage. "'You will come and dine with us to-morrow, and bring your interesting friend,' she said in a low and tired voice. She had been the chief attraction of the race-course, and was wearied out by the exertion of fascinating half the county. "'It's a wonder that she didn't treat you to her never-ending laugh,' whispered Alicia, as she leaned over the carriage door to bid Robert good-night. "'But I dare say she reserves that for your delectation to-morrow. I suppose you are fascinated as well as everybody else,' added the young lady, rather snappishly. "'She is a lovely creature, certainly.' murmured Robert, with placid admiration. "'Oh, of course! Now she is the first woman of whom I ever heard you say a civil word, Robert Audley. I'm sorry to find you can only admire wax dolls.' 
Poor Alicia had had many skirmishes with her cousin, upon that particular temperament of his, which, while it enabled him to go through life with perfect content and tacit enjoyment, entirely precluded his feeling one spark of enthusiasm upon any subject whatever. "'As to his ever falling in love,' thought the young lady sometimes, "'the idea is preposterous. If all the divinities on earth were ranged before him, waiting for his sultanship to throw the handkerchief, he would only lift his eyebrows to the middle of his forehead, and tell them to scramble for it. But for once in his life, Robert was almost enthusiastic. "'She's the prettiest little creature you ever saw in your life, George,' he cried, when the carriage had driven off and he returned to his friend. "'Such blue eyes! Such ringlets! Such a ravishing smile! Such a fairy-like bonnet! All of a tremble with heart-seas and dewy spangles shining out of a cloud of gauze! George Tallboys, I feel like the hero of a French novel. I am falling in love with my aunt.' The widower only sighed and puffed his cigar fiercely out of the open window. Perhaps he was thinking of that far-away time, little better than five years ago, in fact, but such an age gone by to him, when he first met the woman for whom he had worn crape round his hat three days before. They returned, all those old, unforgotten feelings. They came back, with the scene of their birthplace. Again he lounged with his brother officers upon the shabby pier at the shabby watering-place, listening to a dreary band with a cornet that was a note and a half flat. Again he heard the old operatic airs, and again she came tripping toward him, leaning on her old father's arm, and pretending, with such a charming, delicious, serio-comic pretense, to be listening to the music, and quite unaware of the admiration of half a dozen open-mouthed cavalry officers. Again the old fancy came back that she was something too beautiful for earth, or earthly uses, and that to approach her was to walk in a higher atmosphere, and to breathe a purer air. And since this she had been his wife, and the mother of his child. She lay in the little churchyard at Ventnor, and only a year ago he had given the order for her tombstone. A few slow, silent tears dropped upon his waistcoat, as he thought of these things in the quiet and darkening room. Lady Audley was so exhausted when she reached home, that she excused herself from the dinner-table, and retired at once to her dressing-room, attended by her maid, Phoebe Marks. She was a little capricious in her conduct to this maid, sometimes very confidential, sometimes rather reserved. But she was a liberal mistress, and the girl had every reason to be satisfied with her situation. This evening, in spite of her fatigue, she was in extremely high spirits, and gave an animated account of the races, and the company present at them. "'I am tired to death, though, Phoebe,' she said by and by. I am afraid I must look a perfect fright after a day in the hot sun." There were lighted candles on each side of the glass before which Lady Audley was standing on fastening her dress. She looked full at her maid as she spoke, her blue eyes clear and bright, and the rosy childish lips puckered into an arch smile. "'You are a little pale, my lady,' answered the girl, "'but you look as pretty as ever.' "'That's right, Phoebe.' she said, flinging herself into a chair, and throwing back her curls at the maid, who stood, brush in hand, ready to arrange the luxuriant hair for the night. "'Do you know, Phoebe, I have heard some people say that you and I are alike.' "'I have heard them say so, too, my lady,' said the girl quietly. "'But they must be very stupid to say it, for your ladyship is a beauty, and I am a poor, plain creature.' "'Not at all, Phoebe,' said the little lady superbly, 
You are like me, and your features are very nice. It is only color that you want. My hair is pale yellow shot with gold, and yours is drab. My eyebrows and eyelashes are dark brown, and yours are almost—I scarcely like to say it—but they're almost white, my dear Phoebe. Your complexion is sallow, and mine is pink and rosy. Why, with a bottle of hair dye, such as we see advertised in the papers, and a pot of rouge, you'd be as good-looking as I any day, Phoebe." She prattled on in this way for a long time, talking of a hundred different subjects, and ridiculing the people she had met at the races for her maid's amusement. Her stepdaughter came into the dressing-room to bid her good-night, and found the maid and mistress laughing aloud over one of the day's adventures. Alicia, who was never familiar with her servants, withdrew in disgust at my lady's frivolity. "'Go on brushing my hair, Phoebe,' Lady Audley said, every time the girl was about to complete her task. "'I quite enjoy a chat with you.' At last, just as she had dismissed her maid, she suddenly called her back. "'Phoebe Marks,' she said, "'I want you to do me a favor." "'Yes, my lady.' "'I want you to go to London by the first train to-morrow morning to execute a little commission for me. You may take a day's holiday afterward, as I know you have friends in town, and I shall give you a five-pound note if you do what I want, and keep your own counsel about it.' "'Yes, my lady.' "'See that that door is securely shut, and come and sit on this stool at my feet.' The girl obeyed. Lady Audley smoothed her maid's neutral-tinted hair with her plump, white and bejeweled hand as she reflected for a few moments. "'And now listen, Phoebe. What I want you to do is very simple.' It was so simple that it was told in five minutes, and then Lady Audley retired into her bedroom, and curled herself up cosily under the eiderdown quilt. She was a chilly creature, and loved to bury herself in soft wrappings of satin and fur. "'Kiss me, Phoebe,' she said, as the girl arranged the curtains. "'I hear Sir Michael's step in the ante-room. You will meet him as you go out, and you may as well tell him that you are going up by the first train to-morrow morning to get my dress from Madame Frederick for the dinner at Morton Abbey." It was late the next morning when Lady Audley went down to breakfast, past ten o'clock. While she was sipping her coffee, a servant brought her a sealed packet and a book for her to sign. "'A telegraphic message!' she cried, for the convenient word telegram had not yet been invented. "'What can be the matter?' She looked up at her husband with wide-open, terrified eyes, and seemed half afraid to break the seal. The envelope was addressed to Miss Lucy Graham, at Mr. Dawson's, and had been sent on from the village. "'Read it, my darling,' he said. "'And do not be alarmed. It may be nothing of any importance.' It came from a Mrs. Vincent, the schoolmistress with whom she had lived before entering Mr. Dawson's family. The lady was dangerously ill, and implored her old pupil to go and see her. "'Poor soul! She always meant to leave me her money,' said Lucy, with a mournful smile. "'She has never heard of the change in my fortunes. Dear Sir Michael, I must go to her.' "'To be sure you must, dearest. If she was kind to my poor girl in her adversity, she has a claim upon her prosperity that shall never be forgotten. Put on your bonnet, Lucy. We shall be in time to catch the express.' "'You will go with me?' "'Of course, my darling.' Do you suppose I would let you go alone?" "'I was sure you would go with me,' she said thoughtfully. "'Does your friend send any address?' "'No. But she always lived at Crescent Villa, West Brompton, and no doubt she lives there still.' 
There was only time for Lady Audley to hurry on her bonnet and shawl, before she heard the carriage drive round to the door, and Sir Michael calling to her at the foot of the staircase. Her suite of rooms, as I have said, opened one out of another, and terminated in an octagon antechamber hung with oil-paintings. Even in her haste she paused deliberately at the door of this room, double-locked it, and dropped the key into her pocket. This door, once locked, cut off all access to my lady's apartments. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 8 Before the Storm. So the dinner at Audley Court was postponed and Miss Alicia had to wait still longer for an introduction to the handsome young widower, Mr. George Tallboys. I am afraid, if the real truth is to be told, there was, perhaps, something of affectation in the anxiety this young lady expressed to make George's acquaintance. But if poor Alicia for a moment calculated upon arousing any latent spark of jealousy lurking in her cousin's breast by this exhibition of interest, she was not so well acquainted with Robert Audley's disposition as she might have been. Indolent, handsome, and indifferent, the young barrister took life as altogether too absurd a mistake for any one event in its foolish course to be for a moment considered seriously by a sensible man. His pretty, gypsy-faced cousin might have been over head and ears in love with him, and she might have told him so, in some charming, roundabout, womanly fashion, a hundred times a day for all the three hundred and sixty-five days in the year. But unless she had waited for some privileged twenty-ninth of February, and walked straight up to him, saying, "'Robert, please, will you marry me?' I very much doubt if he ever would have discovered the state of her feelings. Again, had he been in love with her himself, I fancy that the tender passion would, with him, have been so vague and feeble a sentiment, that he might have gone down to his grave with a dim sense of some uneasy sensation, which might be love or indigestion, and with, beyond this, no knowledge whatever of his state." So it was not the least use, my poor Alicia, to ride about the lanes around Audley during those three days which the two young men spent in Essex. It was wasted trouble to wear that pretty cavalier hat and plume, and to be always, by the most singular of chances, meeting Robert and his friend. The black curls—nothing like Lady Audley's feathery ringlets, but heavy, clustering locks that clung about your slender, brown throat—the red and pouting lips— the nose inclined to be retrousse, the dark complexion with its bright crimson flush, always ready to glance up like a signal-light in a dusky sky, when you suddenly came upon your apathetic cousin. All this coquettish espiegel, brunette beauty, was thrown away upon the dull eyes of Robert Audley, and you might as well have taken your rest in the cool drawing-room at the court, instead of working your pretty mare to death under the hot September sun. Now fishing— except to the devoted disciple of Isaac Walton, is not the most lively of occupations. Therefore it is scarcely, perhaps, to be wondered that on the day after Lady Audley's departure, the two young men, one of whom was disabled by that heart wound which he bore so quietly, from really taking pleasure in anything, and the other of whom looked upon almost all pleasure as a negative kind of trouble, 
began to grow weary of the shade of the willows overhanging the winding streams about Audley. "'Fig-tree court is not gay in the long vacation,' said Robert, reflectively. "'But I think, upon the whole, it's better than this. At any rate, it's nearer tobacconists,' he added, puffing resignedly at an execrable cigar procured from the landlord of the Sun Inn. George Tallboys, who had only consented to the Essex expedition in passive submission to his friend, was by no means inclined to object to their immediate return to London. "'I shall be glad to get back, Bob,' he said, "'for I want to take a run down to Southampton. I haven't seen the little one for upward of a month.' He always spoke of his son as the little one, always spoke of him mournfully rather than hopefully. He accounted for this by saying that he had a fancy that the child would never learn to love him, and even worse than this fancy, a dim presentiment that he would not live to see his little Georgie reach manhood. "'I'm not a romantic man, Bob,' he would say sometimes, "'and I never read a line of poetry in my life that was any more to me than so many words and so much jingle. But a feeling has come over me since my wife's death, that I am like a man standing upon a long, low shore, with hideous cliffs frowning down upon him from behind, and the rising tide crawling slowly but surely about his feet. It seems to grow nearer and nearer every day, that black, pitiless tide, not rushing upon me with a great noise and a mighty impetus, but crawling, creeping, stealing, gliding toward me, ready to close in above my head when I am least prepared for the end. Robert Audley stared at his friend in silent amazement, and after a pause of profound deliberation, said solemnly, "'George Tallboys, I could understand this if you had been eating heavy suppers. Cold pork, now, especially if underdone, might produce this sort of thing. You only want change of air, my dear boy. You want the refreshing breezes of Fig-Tree Court, and the soothing air of Fleet Street. Or stay,' he added suddenly, "'I have it. You've been smoking our friend the landlord's cigars. That accounts for everything.' They met Alicia Audley on her mare about half an hour after they had come to the determination of leaving Essex early the next morning. The young lady was very much surprised and disappointed at hearing her cousin's determination, and for that very reason pretended to take the matter with supreme indifference. "'You are very soon tired of Audley, Robert,' she said carelessly. "'But of course you have no friends here, except your relations at the court. While in London, no doubt, you have the most delightful society, and—' "'I get good tobacco,' murmured Robert, interrupting his cousin. "'Audley is the dearest old place, but when a man has to smoke dried cabbage-leaves, you know, Alicia.' "'Then you are really going to-morrow morning?' "'Positively. By the express train that leaves at ten-fifty. "'Then Lady Audley will lose an introduction to Mr. Tallboys, and Mr. Tallboys will lose a chance of seeing the prettiest woman in Essex.' "'Really?' stammered George. The prettiest woman in Essex would have a poor chance of getting much admiration out of my friend George Tallboys," said Robert. His heart is at Southampton, where he has a curly-headed little urchin, about as high as his knee, who calls him the big gentleman, and asks him for sugar-plums. "'I am going to write to my stepmother by to-night's post,' said Alicia. She asked me particularly in her letter how long you were going to stop, and whether there was any chance of her being back in time to receive you. Miss Audley took a letter from the pocket of her riding-jacket as she spoke—a pretty, fairy-like note, written on shining paper of a peculiar creamy hue. She says in her postscript, 
"'Be sure you answer my question about Mr. Audley and his friend, you volatile, forgetful Alicia.' "'What a pretty hand she writes,' said Robert, as his cousin folded the note. "'Yes, it is pretty, is it not? Look at it, Robert.' She put the letter into his hand, and he contemplated it lazily for a few minutes, while Alicia patted the graceful neck of her chestnut mare, who was anxious to be off once more. "'Presently, Atalanta, presently. Give me back my note, Bob.' "'It is the prettiest, most coquettish little hand I ever saw. Do you know, Alicia, I have no great belief in those fellows who ask you for thirteen postage-stamps, and offer to tell you what you have never been able to find out yourself. But upon my word, I think that if I had never seen your aunt, I should know what she was like by this slip of paper. Yes, here it all is. The feathery, gold-shot flaxen curls, the penciled eyebrows, the tiny, straight nose, the winning, childish smile—all to be guessed in these few graceful upstrokes and downstrokes. George, look here!" But absent-minded and gloomy George Tallboys had strolled away along the margin of the ditch, and stood striking the bulrushes with his cane, half a dozen paces away from Robert and Alicia. "'Never mind,' said the young lady, impatiently for she by no means relished this long disquisition upon my lady's note. "'Give me the letter, and let me go. It's past eight, and I must answer it by to-night's post. Come, Atalanta!' "'Good-bye, Robert.' "'Good-bye, Mr. Tallboys. A pleasant journey to town.' The chestnut mare cantered briskly through the lane, and Miss Audley was out of sight before those two big, bright tears that stood in her eyes for one moment, before her pride sent them back again rose from her angry heart. "'To have only one cousin in the world,' she cried passionately, "'my nearest relation after Papa, and for him to care about as much for me as he would for a dog!' By the merest of accidents, however, Robert and his friend did not go by the 1050 express on the following morning, for the young barrister awoke with such a splitting headache that he asked George to send him a cup of the strongest green tea that had ever been made at the Sun and to be furthermore so good as to defer their journey until the next day. Of course George assented, and Robert Audley spent the forenoon in a darkened room, with a five-days-old Chelmsford paper to entertain himself withal. "'It's nothing but the cigars, George,' he said repeatedly. "'Get me out of the place without my seeing the landlord, for if that man and I meet there will be bloodshed.' Fortunately for the peace of Audley, it happened to be market-day at Chelmsford, and the worthy landlord had ridden off in his chaise-cart to purchase supplies for his house, among other things, perhaps, a fresh stock of those very cigars which had been so fatal in their effect upon Robert. The young men spent a dull, dawdling, stupid, unprofitable day, and toward dusk Mr. Audley proposed that they should stroll down to the court, and ask Alicia to take them over the house. "'It will kill a couple of hours, you know, George.' and it seems a great pity to drag you away from Audley without having shown you the old place, which, I give you my honour, is very well worth seeing." The sun was low in the skies as they took a short-cut through the meadows, and crossed a stile into the avenue leading to the archway, a lurid, heavy-looking, ominous sunset, and a deathly stillness in the air, which frightened the birds that had a mind to sing, and left the field open to a few captious frogs croaking in the ditches. Still as the atmosphere was, the leaves rustled with that sinister, shivering motion which proceeds from no outer cause, but is rather an instinctive shudder of the frail branches, prescient of a coming storm. 
That stupid clock, which knew no middle course, and always skipped from one hour to the other, pointed to seven as the young men passed under the archway. But for all that, it was nearer eight. They found Alicia in the lime-walk, wandering listlessly up and down under the black shadow of the trees, from which every now and then a withered leaf flapped slowly to the ground. Strange to say, George Tallboys, who very seldom observed anything, took particular notice of this place. "'It ought to be an avenue in a churchyard,' he said. "'How peacefully the dead might sleep under this sombre shade! I wish the churchyard at Ventnor was like this.' They walked on to the ruined well, and Alicia told them some old legend connected with the spot, some gloomy story, such as those always attached to an old house, as if the past were one dark page of sorrow and crime. "'We want to see the house before it is dark, Alicia.' said Robert. "'Then we must be quick,' she answered. "'Come!' She led the way through an open French window, modernized a few years before, into the library, and thence to the hall. In the hall they passed my lady's pale-faced maid, who looked furtively under her white eyelashes at the two young men. They were going upstairs, when Alicia turned and spoke to the girl. "'After we have been in the drawing-room, I should like to show these gentlemen Lady Audley's rooms. Are they in good order, Phoebe? Yes, miss. But the door of the ante-room is locked, and I fancy that my lady has taken the key to London. Taken the key? Impossible! cried Alicia. Indeed, miss, I think she has. I cannot find it, and it always used to be in the door. I declare, said Alicia, impatiently, that is not at all unlike my lady to have taken the silly freak into her head. I dare say she was afraid we should go into her rooms, and pry about among her pretty dresses and meddle with her jewellery. It is very provoking, for the best pictures in the house are in that antechamber. There is her own portrait, too, unfinished but wonderfully like." "'Her portrait!' exclaimed Robert Audley. "'I would give anything to see it, for I have only an imperfect notion of her face. Is there no other way of getting into the room, Alicia?' "'Another way?' "'Yes. Is there any door leading through some of the other rooms by which we can contrive to get into hers?' His cousin shook her head, and conducted them into a corridor where there were some family portraits. She showed them a tapestried chamber, the large figures upon the faded canvas looking threatening in the dusky light. "'That fellow with the battle-axe looks as if he wanted to split George's head open,' said Mr. Audley, pointing to a fierce warrior, whose uplifted arm appeared above George Tallboy's dark hair. "'Come out of this room, Alicia,' added the young man nervously. "'I believe it's damp, or else haunted. Indeed, I believe all ghosts to be the result of damp or dyspepsia. You sleep in a damp bed, you awake suddenly in the dead of night with a cold shiver, and see an old lady in the court costume of George I's time sitting at the foot of the bed. The old lady's indigestion, and the cold shiver is a damp sheet.' There were lighted candles in the drawing-room. No new-fangled lamps had ever made their appearance at Audley Court. Sir Michael's rooms were lighted by honest, thick, yellow-looking wax candles, in massive silver candlesticks, and in sconces against the walls. There was very little to see in the drawing-room, and George Tallboys soon grew tired of staring at the handsome modern furniture, and at a few pictures of some of the academicians. "'Isn't there a secret passage, or an old oak chest, or something of that kind, somewhere about the place, Alicia?' asked Robert. "'To be sure!' cried Miss Audley, with a vehemence that startled her cousin. 
"'Of course! Why didn't I think of it before? How stupid of me, to be sure!' "'Why stupid?' "'Because, if you don't mind crawling upon your hands and knees, you can see my lady's apartments, for that passage communicates with her dressing-room. She doesn't know of it herself, I believe. How astonished she'd be if some black-visored burglar with a dark lantern would arise through the floor some night as she sat before her looking-glass having her hair dressed for a party!' "'Shall we try the secret passage, George?' asked Mr. Audley. "'Yes, if you wish it.' Alicia led them into the room which had once been her nursery. It was now disused, except on very rare occasions when the house was full of company. Robert Audley lifted a corner of the carpet, according to his cousin's directions, and disclosed a rudely cut trap-door in the oak flooring. "'Now listen to me,' said Alicia. "'You must let yourself down by the hands into the passage, which is about four feet high. Stoop your head, walk straight along it till you come to a sharp turn, which will take you to the left, and at the extreme end of it you will find a short ladder below a trap-door like this, which you will have to unbolt. That door opens into the flooring of my lady's dressing-room, which is only covered with a square Persian carpet that you can easily manage to raise. You understand me? Perfectly. Then take the light. Mr. Tallboys will follow you. I give you twenty minutes for your inspection of the paintings—that is, about a minute apiece—and at the end of that time I shall expect to see you return." Robert obeyed her implicitly, and George, submissively following his friend, found himself, in five minutes, standing amidst the elegant disorder of Lady Audley's dressing-room. She had left the house in a hurry on her unlooked-for journey to London, and the whole of her glittering toilette apparatus lay about on the marble dressing-table. The atmosphere of the room was almost oppressive, for the rich odours of perfumes in bottles whose gold stoppers had not been replaced. A bunch of hothouse flowers was withering upon a tiny writing-table. Two or three handsome dresses lay in a heap upon the ground, and the open doors of a wardrobe revealed the treasures within. Jewellery, ivory-backed hair-brushes, and exquisite china were scattered here and there about the apartment. George Tallboy saw his bearded face— and tall, gaunt figure reflected in the glass, and wondered to see how out of place he seemed among all these womanly luxuries. They went from the dressing-room to the boudoir, and through the boudoir into the antechamber, in which there were, as Alicia had said, about twenty valuable paintings, besides my lady's portrait. My lady's portrait stood on an easel, covered with a green baize in the centre of the octagonal chamber. It had been a fancy of the artist to paint her standing in this very room and to make his background a faithful reproduction of the pictured walls. I am afraid the young man belonged to the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, for he had spent a most unconscionable time upon the accessories of this picture, upon my lady's crispy ringlets, and the heavy folds of her crimson velvet dress. The two young men looked at the paintings on the walls first, leaving this unfinished portrait for a bonne bouche. By this time it was dark, the candle carried by Robert only making one nucleus of light as he moved about holding it before the pictures one by one. The broad, bare window looked out upon the pale sky, tinged with the last cold flicker of the twilight. The ivy rustled against the glass with the same ominous shiver as that which agitated every leaf in the garden, prophetic of the storm that was to come. "'These are our friends' eternal white horses,' said Robert, standing beside a Wouverman's. Nicolas Poussin, Salvatore. Ha! Hum! Now for the portrait. He paused with his hand on the baize, and solemnly addressed his friend. George Tallboys, 
he said. We have between us only one wax candle, a very inadequate light with which to look at a painting. Let me therefore request that you will suffer us to look at it one at a time. If there is one thing more disagreeable than another, it is to have a person dodging behind your back and peering over your shoulder, when you are trying to see what a picture is made of." George fell back immediately. He took no more interest in any lady's picture than in all the other wearinesses of this troublesome world. He fell back and, leaning his forehead against the window-panes, looked out at the night. When he turned round he saw that Robert had arranged the easel very conveniently, and that he had seated himself on a chair before it, for the purpose of contemplating the painting at his leisure. He rose as George turned round. "'Now then for your turn, tall boys,' he said. "'It's an extraordinary picture.' He took George's place at the window, and George seated himself in the chair before the easel. Yes, the painter must have been a pre-Raphaelite. No one but a pre-Raphaelite would have painted, hair by hair, those feathery masses of ringlets, with every glimmer of gold and every shadow of pale brown. No one but a pre-Raphaelite would have so exaggerated every attribute of that delicate face, as to give a lurid brightness to the blonde complexion, and a strange, sinister light to the deep blue eyes. No one but a pre-Raphaelite could have given to that pretty, pouting mouth the hard and almost wicked look it had in the portrait. It was so like, and yet so unlike. It was as if you had burned strange-coloured fires before my lady's face, and by their influence brought out new lines and new expressions never seen in it before. The perfection of feature, the brilliancy of colouring were there. But I suppose the painter had copied quaint medieval monstrosities until his brain had grown bewildered, for my lady, in his portrait of her, had something of the aspect of a beautiful fiend. Her crimson dress, exaggerated like all the rest in this strange picture, hung about her in folds that looked like flames, her fair head peeping out of the lurid mass of colour, as if out of a raging furnace. Indeed, the crimson dress, the sunshine on the face, the red-gold gleaming in the yellow hair, the ripe scarlet of the pouting lips, the glowing colours of each accessory of the minutely painted background, all combined to render the first effect of the painting by no means an agreeable one. But strange as the picture was, it could not have made any great impression on George Tallboys, for he sat before it for about a quarter of an hour without uttering a word, only staring blankly at the painted canvas, with the candlestick grasped in his strong right hand, and his left arm hanging loosely by his side. He sat so long in this attitude, that Robert turned round at last. "'Why, George, I thought you had gone to sleep.' "'I had, almost.' "'You've caught a cold from standing in that damp tapestried room. Mark my words, George Tallboys, you've caught a cold. You're as hoarse as a raven. But come along.' Robert Audley took the candle from his friend's hand, and crept back through the secret passage followed by George, very quiet, but scarcely more quiet than usual. They found Alicia in the nursery waiting for them. "'Well?' she said interrogatively. "'We managed it capitally. But I don't like the portrait. There's something odd about it.' "'There is,' said Alicia. "'I've a strange fancy on that point. I think that sometimes a painter is in a manner inspired, and is able to see through the normal expression of the face another expression that is equally a part of it, though not to be perceived by common eyes. We have never seen my lady look as she does in that picture.' but I think she could look so." "'Alicia,' 
said Robert Audley, imploringly. "'Don't be German!' "'But, Robert—' "'Don't be German, Alicia, if you love me. The picture is the picture, and my lady is my lady. That's my way of taking things, and I'm not metaphysical. Don't unsettle me.' He repeated this several times with an air of terror that was perfectly sincere, and then, having borrowed an umbrella in case of being overtaken by the coming storm, left the court, leading passive George Tallboys away with him. The one hand of the stupid clock had skipped to nine by the time they reached the archway, but before they could pass under its shadow, they had to step aside to allow a carriage to dash past them. It was a fly from the village, but Lady Audley's fair face peeped out at the window. Dark as it was, she could see the two figures of the young men black against the dusk. "'Who is that?' she asked, putting out her head. "'Is it the gardener?' "'No, my dear aunt,' said Robert, laughing. It is your most dutiful nephew." He and George stopped by the archway while the fly drew up at the door, and the surprised servants came out to welcome their master and mistress. "'I think the storm will hold off to-night,' said the baronet, looking up at the sky. "'But we shall certainly have it to-morrow.'" End of chapter 8《Chapter Nine of Lady Audley's Secret》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Nine After the Storm. Sir Michael was mistaken in his prophecy upon the weather. The storm did not hold off until next day, but burst with terrible fury over the village of Audley about half an hour before midnight. Robert Audley took the thunder and lightning with the same composure with which he accepted all the other ills of life. He lay on a sofa in the sitting-room, ostensibly reading the five-days-old Chelmsford paper, and regaling himself occasionally with a few sips from a large tumbler of cold punch. But the storm had quite a different effect upon George Tallboys. His friend was startled when he looked at the young man's white face as he sat opposite the open window listening to the thunder, and staring at the black sky, rent every now and then by forked streaks of steel-blue lightning. "'George,' said Robert, after watching him for some time, "'are you frightened of the lightning?' "'No,' he answered curtly. "'But, dear boy, some of the most courageous men have been frightened of it. It is scarcely to be called a fear. It is constitutional.' I am sure you are frightened of it." "'No, I am not.' "'But, George, if you could see yourself white and haggard, with your great hollow eyes staring out at the sky as if they were fixed upon a ghost, I tell you I know that you are frightened. And I tell you that I am not.' "'George Tallboys, you are not only afraid of the lightning, but you are savage with yourself for being afraid, and with me for telling you of your fear.' "'Robert Audley, if you say another word to me, I shall knock you down!' cried George furiously. Having said which, Mr. Tallboy strode out of the room, banging the door after him with a violence that shook the house. Those inky clouds, which had shut in the sultry earth as if with a roof of hot iron, poured out their blackness in a sudden deluge as George left the room. But if the young man was afraid of the lightning, he certainly was not afraid of the rain for he walked straight downstairs to the inn-door, and went out into the wet high-road. He walked up and down, 
up and down in the soaking shower for about twenty minutes, and then, re-entering the inn, strode up to his bedroom. Robert Audley met him on the landing, with his hair beaten about his white face and his garments dripping wet. "'Are you going to bed, George?' "'Yes.' "'But you have no candle.' "'I don't want one.' "'But look at your clothes, man! Do you see the wet streaming down your coat-sleeves? What on earth made you go out upon such a night?' I am tired, and want to go to bed. Don't bother me. You'll take some hot brandy and water, George." Robert Audley stood in his friend's way as he spoke, anxious to prevent his going to bed in the state he was in. But George pushed him fiercely aside, and striding past him, said in the same hoarse voice Robert had noticed at the court, "'Leave me alone, Robert Audley, and keep clear of me if you can.' Robert followed George to his bedroom but the young man banged the door in his face, so there was nothing for it but to leave Mr. Tallboys to himself to recover his temper as best he might. He was irritated at my noticing his terror of the lightning, thought Robert, as he calmly retired to rest, serenely indifferent to the thunder, which seemed to shake him in his bed, and the lightning playing fitfully round the razors in his open dressing-case. The storm rolled away from the quiet village of Audley, and when Robert awoke the next morning it was to see bright sunshine, and a peep of cloudless sky between the white curtains of his bedroom window. It was one of those serene and lovely mornings that sometimes succeed a storm. The birds sung loudly and cheerily, the yellow corn uplifted itself in the broad fields, and waved proudly after its sharp tussle with the tempest, which had done its best to beat down the heavy ears with cruel wind and driving rain half the night through. The vine-leaves clustering round Robert's window fluttered with a joyous rustling, shaking the raindrops in diamond showers from every spray and tendril. Robert Audley found his friend waiting for him at the breakfast-table. George was very pale, but perfectly tranquil, if anything, indeed, more cheerful than usual. He shook Robert by the hand with something of that hearty manner for which he had been distinguished before the one affliction of his life overtook and shipwrecked him. "'Forgive me, Bob,' he said frankly for my surly temper of last night. You were quite correct in your assertion. The thunderstorm did upset me. It always had the same effect upon me in my youth. Poor old boy! Shall we go up by the express, or shall we stop here and dine with my uncle to-night? asked Robert. To tell the truth, Bob, I would rather do neither. It's a glorious morning. Suppose we stroll about all day, take another turn with the rod and line, and go up to town by the train that leaves here at six-fifteen in the evening. Robert Audley would have assented to a far more disagreeable proposition than this, rather than have taken the trouble to oppose his friend. So the matter was immediately agreed upon, and after they had finished their breakfast and ordered a four o'clock dinner, George Tallboys took the fishing-rod across his broad shoulders, and strode out of the house with his friend and companion. But if the equable temperament of Mr. Robert Audley had been undisturbed by the crackling peals of thunder that shook the very foundations of the Sun Inn, it had not been so with the more delicate sensibilities of his uncle's young wife. Lady Audley confessed herself terribly frightened of the lightning. She had her bedstead wheeled into a corner of the room, and with the heavy curtains drawn tightly round her, she lay with her face buried in the pillow, shuddering convulsively at every sound of the tempest without. Sir Michael, whose stout heart had never known a fear, almost trembled for this fragile creature, whom it was his happy privilege to protect and defend. My lady would not consent to undress till nearly three o'clock in the morning, 
when the last lingering peal of thunder had died away among the distant hills. Until that hour, she lay in the handsome silk dress in which she had travelled, huddled together among the bedclothes, only looking up now and then with a scared face to ask if the storm was over. Toward four o'clock her husband, who spent the night in watching by her bedside, saw her drop off into a deep sleep, from which she did not awake for nearly five hours. But she came into the breakfast-room at half-past nine o'clock, singing a little Scotch melody, her cheeks tinged with as delicate a pink as the pale hue of her muslin morning-dress. Like the birds and the flowers, she seemed to recover her beauty and joyousness in the morning sunshine. She tripped lightly out onto the lawn, gathering a last lingering rosebud here and there, and a sprig or two of geranium, and returning through the dewy grass, warbling long cadences for very happiness of heart, and looking as fresh and radiant as the flowers in her hands. The baronet caught her in his strong arms as she came in through the open window. "'My pretty one,' he said, "'my darling, what happiness to see you your own merry self again! Do you know, Lucy, that once last night, when you looked out through the dark green bed-curtains, with your poor white face and the purple rims round your hollow eyes, I had almost difficulty to recognize my little wife in that terrified, agonized-looking creature, crying out about the storm. Thank God for the morning sun, which has brought back the rosy cheeks and bright smile. I hope to heaven, Lucy, I shall never again see you look as you did last night." She stood on tiptoe to kiss him, and then was only tall enough to reach his white beard. She told him, laughing, that she had always been a silly, frightened creature. Frightened of dogs, frightened of cattle, frightened of a thunderstorm, frightened of a rough sea. "'Frightened of everything and everybody but my dear, noble, handsome husband,' she said. She had found the carpet in her dressing-room disarranged, and had inquired into the mystery of the secret passage. She chid Miss Alicia in a playful, laughing way for her boldness in introducing two great men into my lady's rooms. "'And they had the audacity to look at my picture, Alicia.' she said, with mock indignation. "'I found the baize thrown on the ground, and a great man's glove on the carpet. Look!' She held up a thick driving-glove as she spoke. It was George's, which he had dropped looking at the picture. "'I shall go up to the sun, and ask those boys to dinner,' Sir Michael said, as he left the court upon his morning walk round his farm. Lady Audley flitted from room to room in the bright September sunshine, now sitting down to the piano to trill out a ballad, or the first page of an Italian bravura, or running with rapid fingers through a brilliant waltz, now hovering about a stand of hothouse flowers, doing amateur gardening with a pair of fairy-like silver-mounted embroidery scissors, now strolling into her dressing-room to talk to Phoebe Marks, and have her curls rearranged for the third or fourth time, for the ringlets were always getting into disorder, and gave no little trouble to Lady Audley's maid. My dear lady seemed, on this particular September day, restless from very joyousness of spirit, and unable to stay long in one place, or occupy herself with one thing. While Lady Audley amused herself in her own frivolous fashion, the two young men strolled slowly along the margin of the stream until they reached a shady corner where the water was deep and still, and the long branches of the willows trailed into the brook. George Tallboys took the fishing-rod, while Robert stretched himself at full length on a railway rug and balancing his hat upon his nose as a screen from the sunshine, fell fast asleep. Those were happy fish in the stream on the banks of which Mr. Tallboys was seated. 
They might have amused themselves to their heart's content with timid nibbles at this gentleman's bait, without in any manner endangering their safety. For George only stared vacantly in the water, holding his rod in a loose, listless hand, and with a strange, far-away look in his eyes. As the church clock struck two, he threw down his rod, and striding away along the bank, left Robert Audley to enjoy a nap which, according to that gentleman's habits, was by no means unlikely to last for two or three hours. About a quarter of a mile further on, George crossed a rustic bridge, and struck into the meadows which led to Audley Court. The birds had sung so much all the morning, that they had, perhaps, by this time grown tired. The lazy cattle were asleep in the meadows. Sir Michael was still away on his morning's ramble. Miss Alicia had scampered off an hour before on her chestnut mare. The servants were all at dinner in the back part of the house, and my lady had strolled, book in hand, into the shadowy lime-walk, so that the grey old building had never worn a more peaceful aspect than on that bright afternoon when George Tallboys walked across the lawn to ring a sonorous peal at the sturdy, iron-bound oak door. The servant who answered his summons told him that Sir Michael was out, and my lady walking in the lime-tree avenue. He looked a little disappointed at this intelligence, and muttering something about wishing to see my lady, or going to look for my lady—the servant did not clearly distinguish his words— strode away from the door without leaving either card or message for the family. It was full an hour and a half after this when Lady Audley returned to the house, not coming from the lime-walk, but from exactly the opposite direction, carrying her open book in her hand and singing as she came. Alicia had just dismounted from her mare, and stood in the low-arched doorway with her great Newfoundland dog by her side. The dog, which had never liked my lady, showed his teeth with a suppressed growl. "'Send that hard animal away, Alicia,' Lady Audley said impatiently. "'The brute knows that I am frightened of him, and takes advantage of my terror. And yet they call the creatures generous and noble-hearted. Bah! Caesar! I hate you, and you hate me. And if you met me in the dark in some narrow passage, you would fly at my throat and strangle me, wouldn't you?' My lady, safely sheltered behind her stepdaughter, shook her yellow curls at the angry animal, and defied him maliciously. "'Do you know, Lady Audley, that Mr. Tallboys, the young widower, has been here asking for Sir Michael and you?' Lucy Audley lifted her pencilled eyebrows. "'I thought they were coming to dinner,' she said. "'Surely we shall have enough of them then.' She had a heap of wild autumn flowers in the skirt of her muslin dress. She had come through the fields at the back of the court, gathering the hedgerow blossoms in her way. She ran lightly up the broad staircase to her own rooms. George's glove lay on her boudoir table. Lady Audley rung the bell violently, and it was answered by Phoebe Marks. "'Take that litter away,' she said sharply. The girl collected the glove and a few withered flowers and torn papers lying on the table into her apron. "'What have you been doing all this morning?' asked my lady. "'Not wasting your time, I hope. "'No, my lady. I have been altering the blue dress. It is rather dark on this side of the house, so I took it up to my own room and worked at the window.' The girl was leaving the room as she spoke, but she turned around and looked at Lady Audley, as if waiting for further orders. Lucy looked up at the same moment, and the eyes of the two women met. "'Phoebe Marks,' said my lady, throwing herself into an easy-chair and trifling with the wildflowers in her lap. You are a good, industrious girl, and while I live and am prosperous, you shall never want a firm friend. 
or a twenty-pound note. End of chapter 9、Chapter、10 of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 10 Missing. When Robert Audley awoke, he was surprised to see the fishing rod lying in the bank, the line trailing idly in the water, and the float bobbing harmlessly up and down in the afternoon sunshine. The young barrister was a long time stretching his arms and legs in various directions to convince himself, by means of such exercise, that he still retained the proper use of those members. Then, with a mighty effort, he contrived to rise from the grass. And having deliberately folded his railway rug into a convenient shape for carrying over his shoulder, he strolled away to look for George Talboys. Once or twice he gave a sleepy shout, scarcely loud enough to scare the birds in the branches above his head or the trout in the stream at his feet, but receiving no answer, grew tired of the exertion and dawdled on, yawning as he went, and still looking for George Talboys. By and by he took out his watch and was surprised to find that it was a quarter past four. Why, the selfish beggar must have gone home to his dinner, he muttered reflectively. And yet that isn't much like him, for he seldom remembers even his meals unless I jog his memory. Even a good appetite, and the knowledge that his dinner would very likely suffer by this delay, could not quicken Mr. Robert Audley's constitutional dawdle, and by the time he strolled in at the front door of the sun, the clocks were striking five. He so fully expected to find George Talboys waiting for him in the little sitting room. That the absence of that gentleman seemed to give the apartment a dreary look, and Robert groaned aloud. This is lively, he said. A cold dinner, and nobody to eat it with. The landlord of the Sun came himself to apologize for his ruined dishes. As fine a pair of ducks, Mr. Audley, as ever you clapped eyes on, but burnt up to a cinder, along o' being kept hot. Never mind the ducks, Robert said impatiently. Where's Mr. Tallboys? He ain't been in, sir, since you went out together this morning. What? cried Robert. Why, in heaven's name, what has the man done with himself? He walked to the window and looked out upon the broad white high road. There was a wagon laden with trusses of hay crawling slowly past, the lazy horses and the lazy wagoner drooping their heads with a weary stoop under the afternoon sunshine. There was a flock of sheep straggling about the road, with a dog running himself into a fever in the endeavour to keep them decently together. There were some bricklayers just released from work, a tinker mending some kettles by the roadside. There was a dog cart dashing down the road, carrying the master of the Audley hounds to his seven o'clock dinner. There were a dozen common village sights and sounds that mixed themselves up into a cheerful bustle and confusion. But there was no George Talboys. Of all the extraordinary things that ever happened to me in the whole course of my life, said Mr. Robert Audley, this is the most miraculous. The landlord, still in attendance, opened his eyes as Robert made this remark. What could there be extraordinary in the simple fact of a gentleman being late for his dinner? I shall go and look for him, said Robert, snatching up his hat and walking straight out of the house. But the question was where to look for him. He certainly was not by the trout stream, so it was no good going back there in search of him. 
Robert was standing before the inn, deliberating on what was best to be done, when the landlord came out after him. "'I forgot to tell you, Mr. Audley, as how your uncle called here five minutes after you was gone, and left a message, asking of you and the other gentlemen to go down to dinner at the court.' "'Then I shouldn't wonder,' said Robert, "'if George Tallboys has gone down to the court to call upon my uncle. It isn't like him, but it's just possible that he has done it.' It was six o'clock when Robert knocked at the door of his uncle's house. He did not ask to see any of the family, but inquired at once for his friend. Yes, the servant told him. Mr. Tallboys had been there at two o'clock, or a little after. And not since? No, not since. Was the man sure that it was at two Mr. Tallboys called? Robert asked. Yes, perfectly sure. He remembered the hour, because it was the servant's dinner hour, and he had left the table to open the door to Mr. Tallboys. "'Why, what can have become of the man?' thought Robert, as he turned his back upon the court. "'From two till six, four good hours, and no signs of him!' If any one had ventured to tell Mr. Robert Audley that he could possibly feel a strong attachment to any creature breathing, that cynical gentleman would have elevated his eyebrows in supreme contempt at the preposterous notion. Yet here he was, flurried and anxious, bewildering his brain by all manner of conjectures about his missing friend, and false to every attribute of his nature, walking fast. "'I haven't walked fast since I was at Eton,' he murmured, as he hurried across one of Sir Michael's meadows in the direction of the village. "'And the worst of it is, that I haven't the most remote idea where I am going.' Here he crossed another meadow, and then seating himself upon a stile, rested his elbows upon his knees, buried his face in his hands, and set himself seriously to think the matter out. "'I have it,' he said, after a few moments' thought. "'The railway station!' He sprang over the stile, and started off in the direction of the little red-brick building. There was no train expected for another half-hour, and the clerk was taking his tea in an apartment on one side of the office, on the door of which was inscribed in large white letters, "'Private.' But Mr. Audley was too much occupied with the one idea of looking for his friend to pay any attention to this warning. He strode at once to the door, and, rattling his cane against it, brought the clerk out of his sanctum in a perspiration from hot tea, and with his mouth full of bread and butter. "'Do you remember the gentleman that came down to Audley with me, Smithers?' asked Robert. "'Well, to tell you the real truth, Mr. Audley, I can't say that I do.' You came by the four o'clock, if you remember, and there's always a good many passengers by that train. You don't remember him, then? Not to my knowledge, sir. Ah, oh, that's provoking. I want to know, Smithers, whether he has taken a ticket for London since two o'clock to-day. He's a tall, broad-chested young fellow with a big brown beard. You couldn't well mistake him. There was four or five gentlemen as took tickets for the three-thirty up said the clerk, rather vaguely, casting an anxious glance over his shoulder at his wife, who looked by no means pleased at this interruption to the harmony of the tea-table. Four or five gentlemen! But did either of them answer to the description of my friend?' "'Well, I think one of them had a beard, sir.' "'A dark brown beard?' "'Well, I don't know, but it was brownish-like. Was he dressed in grey? "'I believe it was grey. A great many gents wear grey. He asked for the ticket sharp and short-like, and when he'd got it, walked straight out onto the platform, whistling. "'That's George,' said Robert. "'Thank you, Smithers. I needn't trouble you any more. It's as clear as daylight,' he muttered as he left the station. 
He's got one of his gloomy fits on him, and he's gone back to London without saying a word about it. I'll leave Audley myself to-morrow morning. And for to-night, why, I may as well go down to the court and make the acquaintance of my uncle's young wife. They don't dine till seven. If I get back across the fields, I shall be in time. Bob, otherwise Robert Audley, this sort of thing will never do. You are falling over head and ears in love with your aunt. End of chapter 10、Chapter、Eleven of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Eleven The Mark Upon My Lady's Wrist. Robert found Sir Michael and Lady Audley in the drawing room. My lady was sitting on a music stool before the grand piano, turning over the leaves of some new music. She twirled upon the revolving seat, making a rustling with her silk flounces, as Mr. Robert Audley's name was announced. Then, leaving the piano, she made her nephew a pretty, mock ceremonious curtsey. Thank you so much for the sables, she said, holding out her little fingers, all glittering and twinkling with the diamonds she wore upon them. Thank you for those beautiful sables. How good it was of you to get them for me. Robert had almost forgotten the commission he had executed for Lady Audley during his Russian expedition. His mind was so full of George Talboys that he only acknowledged my lady's gratitude by a bow. Would you believe it, Sir Michael? he said. That foolish chum of mine has gone back to London, leaving me in the lurch. Mr. George Talboys returned to town, exclaimed my lady, lifting her eyebrows. What a dreadful catastrophe, said Alicia maliciously. Since Pythias, in the person of Mr. Robert Audley, cannot exist for half an hour without Damon, commonly known as George Talboys. He's a very good fellow, Robert said stoutly, and to tell the honest truth, I'm rather uneasy about him. Uneasy about him? My lady was quite anxious to know why Robert was uneasy about his friend. I'll tell you why, Lady Audley, answered the young barrister. George had a bitter blow a year ago in the death of his wife. He has never got over that trouble. He takes life pretty quietly, almost as quietly as I do, but he often talks very strangely, and I sometimes think that one day this grief will get the better of him, and he will do something rash. Mr. Robert Audley spoke vaguely, but all three of his listeners knew that the something rash to which he alluded was that one deed for which there is no repentance. There was a brief pause. During which Lady Audley arranged her yellow ringlets by the aid of the glass over the console table opposite to her. Dear me, she said, this is very strange. I did not think men were capable of these deep and lasting affections. I thought that one pretty face was as good as another pretty face to them, and that when number one with blue eyes and fair hair died, they had only to look out for number two with dark eyes and black hair by way of variety. George Talboys is not one of those men. I firmly believe that his wife's death broke his heart. How sad! murmured Lady Audley. It seems almost cruel of Mrs. Talboys to die and grieve her poor husband so much. Alicia was right. She is childish, thought Robert as he looked at his aunt's pretty face. My lady was very charming at the dinner table. 
She professed the most bewitching incapacity for carving the pheasant set before her, and called Robert to her assistance. "'I could carve a leg of mutton at Mr. Dawson's,' she said, laughing. "'But a leg of mutton is so easy, and then I used to stand up.' Sir Michael watched the impression my lady made upon his nephew with a proud delight in her beauty and fascination. "'I am so glad to see my poor little woman in her usual good spirits once more,' he said. She was very downhearted yesterday at a disappointment she met with in London. A disappointment? Yes, Mr. Audley, a very cruel one, answered my lady. I received the other morning a telegraphic message from my dear old friend and schoolmistress, telling me that she was dying, and that if I wanted to see her again I must hasten to her immediately. The telegraphic dispatch contained no address, and of course from that very circumstance— I imagined that she must be living in the house in which I left her three years ago. Sir Michael and I hurried up to town immediately, and drove straight to the old address. The house was occupied by strange people, who could give me no tidings of my friend. It is in a retired place, where there are very few tradespeople about. Sir Michael made inquiries at the few shops there are, but, after taking an immense deal of trouble, could discover nothing whatever likely to lead to the information we wanted. I have no friends in London, and had therefore no one to assist me except my dear, generous husband, who did all in his power but in vain to find my friend's new residence. "'It was very foolish not to send the address in the telegraphic message,' said Robert. "'When people are dying, it is not so easy to think of all these things,' murmured my lady, looking reproachfully at Mr. Audley with her soft blue eyes. In spite of Lady Audley's fascination— and in spite of Robert's very unqualified admiration of her, the barrister could not overcome a vague feeling of uneasiness on this quiet September evening. As he sat in the deep embrasure of a mullioned window, talking to my lady, his mind wandered away to shady fig-tree court, and he thought of poor George Tallboys, smoking his solitary cigar in the room with the birds and canaries. "'I wish I'd never felt any friendliness for the fellow,' he thought. I feel like a man who has an only son whose life has gone wrong with him. I wish to heaven I could give him back his wife, and send him down to Ventnor to finish his days in peace. Still, my lady's pretty musical prattle ran on as merrily and continuously as the babble in some brook, and still Robert's thoughts wandered, in spite of himself, to George Tallboys. He thought of him hurrying down to Southampton by the mail train to see his boy. He thought of him as he had often seen him, spelling over the shipping advertisements in the Times, looking for a vessel to take him back to Australia. Once he thought of him with a shudder, lying cold and stiff at the bottom of some shallow stream, with his dead face turned toward the darkening sky. Lady Audley noticed his abstraction, and asked him what he was thinking of. "'George Tallboys,' he answered abruptly. She gave a little nervous shudder. "'Upon my word!' she said. "'You make me quite uncomfortable by the way in which you talk of Mr. Tallboys. One would think that something extraordinary had happened to him.' "'God forbid! But I cannot help feeling uneasy about him.' Later in the evening Sir Michael asked for some music, and my lady went to the piano. Robert Audley strolled after her to the instrument to turn over the leaves of her music, but she played from memory, and he was spared the trouble his gallantry would have imposed upon him. He carried a pair of lighted candles to the piano, and arranged them conveniently for the pretty musician. She struck a few chords, and then wandered into a pensive sonata of Beethoven's. It was one of the many paradoxes of her character. 
that love of sombre and melancholy melodies, so opposite to her gay nature. Robert Audley lingered by her side, and as he had no occupation in turning over the leaves of her music, he amused himself by watching her jewelled white hands gliding softly over the keys, with the lace sleeves dropping away from her graceful arched wrists. He looked at her pretty fingers one by one, this one glittering with a ruby heart, that encircled by an emerald serpent, and about them all a starry glitter of diamonds. From the fingers his eyes wandered to the rounded wrists, the broad, flat gold bracelet upon her right wrist dropped over her hand as she executed a rapid passage. She stopped abruptly to rearrange it, but before she could do so Robert Audley noticed a bruise upon her delicate skin. "'You have hurt your arm, Lady Audley,' he exclaimed. She hastily replaced the bracelet. "'It is nothing,' she said. "'I am unfortunate in having a skin which the slightest touch bruises.' She went on playing, but Sir Michael came across the room to look into the matter of the bruise upon his wife's pretty wrist. "'What is it, Lucy?' he asked. "'And how did it happen?' "'How foolish you all are to trouble yourselves about anything so absurd,' said Lady Audley, laughing. "'I am rather absent in mind, and amused myself a few days ago by tying a piece of ribbon around my arm so tightly that it left a bruise when I removed it.' "'Hm,' thought Robert. My lady tells little childish white lies. The bruise is of a more recent date than a few days ago. The skin has only just begun to change color. Sir Michael took the slender wrist in his strong hand. "'Hold the candle, Robert,' he said, "'and let us look at this poor little arm.' It was not one bruise, but four slender purple marks, such as might have been made by the four fingers of a powerful hand that had grasped the delicate wrist a shade too roughly. A narrow ribbon bound tightly might have left some such marks, it is true, and my lady protested once more that, to the best of her recollection, that must have been how they were made. Across one of the faint purple marks there was a darker tinge, as if a ring worn on one of those strong and cruel fingers had been ground into the tender flesh. "'I am sure my lady must tell white lies,' thought Robert, "'for I can't believe the story of the ribbon.' He wished his relations good-night and good-bye at about half-past ten o'clock, he should run up to London by the first train to look for George in Figtree Court. "'If I don't find him there, I shall go to Southampton,' he said. "'And if I don't find him there—' "'What then?' asked my lady. "'I shall think that something strange has happened.' Robert Audley felt very low-spirited as he walked slowly home between the shadowy meadows more low-spirited still when he re-entered the sitting-room at the Sun Inn, where he and George had lounged together, staring out of the window and smoking their cigars. "'To think,' he said meditatively, "'that it is possible to care so much for a fellow. But come what may, I'll go up to town after him the first thing to-morrow morning, and sooner than be balked in finding him, I'll go to the very end of the world.' With Mr. Audley's lymphatic nature, Determination was so much the exception rather than the rule, that when he did for once in his life resolve upon any course of action, he had a certain dogged, iron-like obstinacy that pushed him on to the fulfilment of his purpose. The lazy bent of his mind, which prevented him from thinking of half a dozen things at a time, and not thinking thoroughly of any one of them, as is the manner of your more energetic people, made him remarkably clear-sighted upon any point to which he ever gave his serious attention. Indeed, after all, those solemn benchers laughed at him, and rising barristers shrugged their shoulders under rustling silk gowns, 
when people spoke of Robert Audley, I doubt if, had he ever taken the trouble to get a brief, he might not have rather surprised the magnates who underrated his abilities. End of chapter 11《Chapter Twelve of Lady Audley's Secret》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Twelve Still Missing. The September sunlight sparkled upon the fountain in the temple gardens when Robert Audley returned to Fig Tree Court early the following morning. He found the canary singing in the pretty little room in which George had slept, but the apartment was in the same prim order in which the laundress had arranged it after the departure of the two young men, not a chair displaced, or so much as the lid of a cigar-box lifted, to bespeak the presence of George Tallboys. With a last lingering hope, he searched upon the mantelpieces and tables of his rooms, on the chance of finding some letter left by George. "'He may have slept here last night, and started for Southampton early this morning,' he thought. "'Mrs. Maloney has been here very likely to make everything tidy after him.' But as he sat looking lazily around the room, now and then whistling to his delighted canaries, a slipshod foot upon the staircase without bespoke the advent of that very Mrs. Maloney who waited upon the two young men. No, Mr. Tallboys had not come home. She had looked in as early as six o'clock that morning, and found the chambers empty. "'Had anything happened to the poor dear gentleman?' she asked, seeing Robert Audley's pale face. He turned around upon her quite savagely at this question. "'Happened to him? What should happen to him? They had only parted at two o'clock the day before.' Mrs. Maloney would have related to him the history of a poor dear young engine-driver, who had once lodged with her, and who went out, after eating a hearty dinner, in the best of spirits, to meet with his death from the concussion of an express in a luggage-train. But Robert put on his hat again, and walked straight out of the house before the honest Irishwoman could begin her pitiful story. It was growing dusk when he reached Southampton. He knew his way to the poor little terrace of houses, in a full street leading down to the water, where George's father-in-law lived. Little Georgie was playing at the open parlour window as the young man walked down the street. Perhaps it was this fact, and the dull and silent aspect of the house, which filled Robert Audley's mind with a vague conviction that the man he came to look for was not there. The old man himself opened the door, and the child peeped out of the parlour to see the strange gentleman. He was a handsome boy, with his father's brown eyes and dark waving hair, and with some latent expression which was not his father's, and which pervaded his whole face, so that although each feature of the child resembled the same feature in George Tallboy's, the boy was not actually like him. Mr. Malden was delighted to see Robert Audley. He remembered having had the pleasure of meeting him at Ventnor, on the melancholy occasion of—he wiped his watery old eyes by way of conclusion to the sentence—would Mr. Audley walk in? Robert strode into the parlour. The furniture was shabby and dingy, and the place reeked with the smell of stale tobacco and brandy and water. The boy's broken playthings, and the old man's broken clay pipes and torn brandy-and-water-stained newspapers, were scattered upon the dirty carpet. Little Georgie crept toward the visitor, watching him furtively out of his big, brown eyes. Robert took the boy on his knee, 
and gave him his watch-chain to play with while he talked to the old man. "'I need scarcely ask the question that I come to ask,' he said. "'I was in hopes I should have found your son-in-law here.' "'What? You knew that he was coming to Southampton?' "'Knew that he was coming?' cried Robert, brightening up. "'He is here, then?' "'No, he is not here now, but he has been here.' "'When?' "'Late last night he came by the mail.' "'And left again immediately?' He stayed little better than an hour. "'Good heaven!' said Robert. "'What useless anxiety that man has given me! What can be the meaning of all this?' "'You knew nothing of his intention, then?' "'Of what intention?' "'I mean of his determination to go to Australia.' "'I know that it was always in his mind, more or less, but not more just now than usual.' "'He sails to-night from Liverpool.' He came here at one o'clock this morning to have a look at the boy, he said, before he left England, perhaps never to return. He told me he was sick of the world, and that the rough life out there was the only thing to suit him. He stayed an hour, kissed the boy without awaking him, and left Southampton by the mail that starts at a quarter past two. "'What can be the meaning of all this?' said Robert. "'What could be his motive for leaving England in this manner without a word to me, his most intimate friend?' without even a change of clothes, for he has left everything at my chambers. It is the most extraordinary proceeding." The old man looked very grave. "'Do you know, Mr. Audley,' he said, tapping his forehead significantly, "'I sometimes fancy that Helen's death had a strange effect upon poor George.' "'Pshaw!' cried Robert contemptuously. "'He felt the blow most cruelly, but his brain was as sound as yours or mine.' "'Perhaps he will write to you from Liverpool,' said George's father-in-law. He seemed anxious to smooth over any indignation that Robert might feel at his friend's conduct. "'He ought,' said Robert, gravely, "'for we've been good friends from the days when we were together at Eton. It isn't kind of George Tallboys to treat me like this.' But even at the moment that he uttered the reproach, a strange thrill of remorse shot through his heart. "'It isn't like him,' he said. "'It isn't like George Tallboys.' Little Georgie caught at the sound. "'That's my name,' he said. "'And my papa's name, the big gentleman's name.' "'Yes, little Georgie, and your papa came last night and kissed you in your sleep. Do you remember?' "'No,' said the boy, shaking his curly little head. "'You must have been very fast asleep, little Georgie, not to see poor papa.' The child did not answer, but presently, fixing his eyes upon Robert's face, he said abruptly, "'Where's the pretty lady?' "'What pretty lady?' "'The pretty lady that used to come a long while ago.' "'He means his poor mamma," said the old man. "'No!' cried the boy resolutely. "'Not mamma. Mamma was always crying. I didn't like mamma. "'Hush, little Georgie.' "'But I didn't, and she didn't like me. She was always crying.' "'I mean the pretty lady, the lady that was dressed so fine, and that gave me my gold watch.' He means the wife of my old captain, an excellent creature who took a great fancy to Georgie, and gave him some handsome presents. "'Where's my gold watch? Let me show the gentleman my gold watch,' cried Georgie. "'It's gone to be clean, Georgie,' answered his grandfather. "'It's always going to be cleaned,' said the boy. "'The watch is perfectly safe, I assure you, Mr. Audley,' murmured the old man apologetically and taking out a pawnbroker's duplicate, he handed it to Robert. It was made out in the name of Captain Mortimer, 
Watch, set with diamonds, eleven pounds. "'I'm often hard-pressed for a few shillings, Mr. Audley,' said the old man. "'My son-in-law has been very liberal to me, but there are others. There are others, Mr. Audley, and—and I've not been treated well.' He wiped away some genuine tears as he said this in a pitiful, crying voice. "'Come, Georgie, it's time the brave little man was in bed. Come along with Grandpa. Excuse me for a quarter of an hour, Mr. Audley.' The boy went very willingly. At the door of the room the old man looked back at his visitor, and said in the same peevish voice, "'This is a poor place for me to pass my declining years in, Mr. Audley. I've made many sacrifices, and I make them still, but I've not been treated well.' Left alone in the dusky little sitting-room, Robert Audley folded his arms and sat absently staring at the floor. George was gone, then. He might receive some letter of explanation, perhaps, when he returned to London but the chances were that he would never see his old friend again. "'And to think that I should care so much for the fellow,' he said, lifting his eyebrows to the centre of his forehead. "'The place smells of stale tobacco like a tap-room,' he muttered presently. "'There could be no harm in my smoking a cigar here.' He took one from the case in his pocket. There was a spark of fire in the little grate, and he looked about for something to light his cigar with. A twisted piece of paper lay half-burned upon the hearth-rug. He picked it up and unfolded it in order to get a better pipe-light by folding it the other way of the paper. As he did so, absently glancing at the penciled writing upon the fragment of thin paper, a portion of a name caught his eye—a portion of the name that was most in his thoughts. He took the scrap of paper to the window, and examined it by the declining light. It was part of a telegraphic dispatch. The upper portion had been burnt away but the more important part, the greater part of the message itself, remained. All boys came to—last night, and left by the mail for London, on his way to Liverpool, whence he was to sail for Sydney. The date and the name and the address of the sender and the message had been burnt with the heading. Robert Audley's face blanched to a deathly whiteness. He carefully folded the scrap of paper, and placed it between the leaves of his pocket-book. "'My God!' he said. "'What is the meaning of this? I shall go to Liverpool to-night and make inquiries there.'" End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 of Lady Audley's Secret This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 13 Troubled Dreams. Robert Audley left Southampton by the mail, and let himself into his chambers just as the dawn was creeping cold and grey into the solitary rooms and the canaries were beginning to rustle their feathers feebly in the early morning. There were several letters in the box behind the door, but there was none from George Tallboys. The young barrister was worn out by a long day spent in hurrying from place to place. The usual lazy monotony of his life had been broken, as it had never been broken before in eight-and-twenty tranquil, easy-going years. His mind was beginning to grow confused upon the point of time. It seemed to him months since he had lost sight of George Tallboys. 
It was so difficult to believe that it was less than forty-eight hours ago that the young man had left him asleep under the willows by the trout-stream. His eyes were painfully weary for want of sleep. He searched about the room for some time, looking in all sorts of impossible places for a letter from George Tallboys, and then threw himself dressed upon his friend's bed, in the room with the canaries and geraniums. "'I shall wait for to-morrow morning's post,' he said. "'And if that brings no letter from George, I shall start for Liverpool without a moment's delay.' He was thoroughly exhausted, and fell into a heavy sleep, a sleep which was profound without being in any way refreshing, for he was tormented all the time by disagreeable dreams, dreams which were painful, not from any horror in themselves, but from a vague and wearying sense of their confusion and absurdity. At one time he was pursuing strange people, and entering strange houses, in the endeavour to unravel the mystery of the telegraphic dispatch. At another time he was in the churchyard at Ventnor, gazing at the headstone George had ordered for the grave of his dead wife. Once in the long rambling mystery of these dreams, he went to the grave, and found this headstone gone, and on remonstrating with the stonemason, was told that the man had a reason for removing the inscription a reason that Robert would some day learn. In another dream, he saw the grave of Helen Talboys open, and while he waited, with the cold horror lifting up his hair to see the dead woman rise and stand before him, with her stiff, charnel-house drapery clinging about her rigid limbs, his uncle's wife tripped gaily out of the open grave, dressed in the crimson velvet robes in which the artist had painted her, and with her ringlets flashing like red gold in the unearthly light that shone about her. But into all these dreams the places he had last been in, and the people with whom he had last been concerned, were dimly interwoven, sometimes his uncle, sometimes Alicia, oftenest of all my lady, the trout-stream in Essex, the lime-walk at the court. Once he was walking in the black shadows of this long avenue, with Lady Audley hanging on his arm, when suddenly they heard a great knocking in the distance, and his uncle's wife wound her slender arms around him crying out that it was the day of judgment, and that all wicked secrets must now be told. Looking at her as she shrieked this in his ear, he saw that her face had grown ghastly white, and that her beautiful golden ringlets were changing into serpents, and slowly creeping down her fair neck. He started from his dream to find that there was some one really knocking at the outer door of his chambers. It was a dreary, wet morning, the rain beating against the windows, and the canaries twittering dismally to each other, complaining, perhaps, of the bad weather. Robert could not tell how long the person had been knocking. He had mixed the sound with his dreams, and when he woke he was only half conscious of other things. "'It's that stupid Mrs. Maloney, I dare say,' he muttered. "'She may knock again, for all I care. Why can't she use her duplicate key, instead of dragging a man out of bed when he's half dead with fatigue?' The person, whoever it was, did knock again, and then desisted, apparently tired out. But about a minute afterward a key turned in the door. "'She had her key with her all the time, then,' said Robert. "'I'm very glad I didn't get up.' The door between the sitting-room and bedroom was half open, and he could see the laundress bustling about, dusting the furniture and rearranging things that had never been disarranged. "'Is that you, Mrs. Maloney?' he asked. "'Yes, sir.' "'Then why, in goodness' name, did you make that row at the door when you had a key with you all the time?' "'A row at the door, sir?' "'Yes, that infernal knocking.' "'Sure, I never knocked, Mr. Audley, but walked straight in with my key. 
Then who did knock? There's been someone kicking up a row at that door for a quarter of an hour, I should think. You must have met him going downstairs. But I'm rather late this morning, sir, for I've been in Mr. Martin's rooms first, and I've come straight from the floor above. Then you didn't see anyone at the door, or on the stairs? Not a mortal soul, sir. Was ever anything so provoking, said Robert, to think that I should have let this person go away without ascertaining who he was or what he wanted. How do I know that it was not someone with a message or a letter from George Tallboys? Sure, if it was, sir, he'll come again, said Mrs. Maloney, soothingly. Yes, of course. If it was anything of consequence, he'll come again, muttered Robert. The fact was that from the moment of finding the telegraphic message at Southampton, all hope of hearing of George had faded out of his mind. He felt that there was some mystery involved in the disappearance of his friend, some treachery toward himself or toward George. What if the young man's greedy old father-in-law had tried to separate them, on account of the monetary trust lodged in Robert Audley's hands? Or what if, since even in these civilized days all kinds of unsuspected horrors are constantly committed, what if the old man had decoyed George down to Southampton, and made away with him in order to get possession of that twenty thousand pounds left in Robert's custody for little Georgie's use? But neither of these suppositions explained the telegraphic message, and it was the telegraphic message which had filled Robert's mind with a vague sense of alarm. The postman brought no letter from George Tallboys, and the person who had knocked at the door of the chambers did not return between seven and nine o'clock. So Robert Audley left Figtree Court once more in search of his friend. This time he told the cabman to drive to the Euston station, and in twenty minutes he was on the platform, making inquiries about the trains. The Liverpool Express had started half an hour before he reached the station, and he had to wait an hour and a quarter for a slow train to take him to his destination. Robert Audley chafed cruelly at this delay. Half a dozen vessels might sail for Australia while he roamed up and down the long platform, tumbling over trucks and porters and swearing at his ill luck. He bought the Times newspaper, and looked instinctively at the second column, with a morbid interest in the advertisements of people missing—sons, brothers, and husbands who had left their homes, never to return or to be heard of more. There was one advertisement of a young man found drowned somewhere on the Lambeth shore. What if that should have been George's fate? No, the telegraphic message involved his father-in-law and the fact of his disappearance, and every speculation about him must start from that point. It was eight o'clock in the evening when Robert got into Liverpool, too late for anything except to make inquiries as to what vessel had sailed within the last two days for the Antipodes. An emigrant ship had sailed at four o'clock that afternoon, the Victoria Regia, bound for Melbourne. The result of his inquiries amounted to this. If he wanted to find out who had sailed in the Victoria Regia, he must wait until the next morning, and apply for information of that vessel. Robert Audley was at the office at nine o'clock the next morning, and was the first person after the clerks who entered it. He met with every civility from the clerk to whom he applied. The young man referred to his books, and running his pen down the list of passengers who had sailed in the Victoria Regia, told Robert that there was no one among them of the name of Tallboys. He pushed his inquiries further. Had any of the passengers entered their names within a short time of the vessel's sailing? One of the other clerks looked up from his desk as Robert asked this question. Yes, he said. He remembered a young man's coming into the office at half-past three o'clock in the afternoon, and paying his passage money. His name was the last on the list. Thomas Brown. 
Robert Audley shrugged his shoulders. There could have been no possible reason for George's taking a feigned name. He asked the clerk who had last spoken if he could remember the appearance of this Mr. Thomas Brown. No, the office was crowded at that time. People were running in and out, and he had not taken any particular notice of this last passenger. Robert thanked them for their civility, and wished them good morning. As he was leaving the office, one of the young men called after him. "'Oh, by the by, sir,' he said, "'I remember one thing about this Mr. Thomas Brown. His arm was in a sling.' There was nothing more for Robert Audley to do but to return to town. He re-entered his chambers at six o'clock that evening, thoroughly worn out once more with his useless search. Mrs. Maloney brought him his dinner and a pint of wine from a tavern in the Strand. The evening was raw and chilly, and the laundress had lighted a good fire in the sitting-room grate. After eating about half a mutton-chop, Robert sat with his wine untasted upon the table before him, smoking cigars and staring into the blaze. "'George Tallboys never sailed for Australia,' he said, after long and painful reflection. "'If he is alive, he is still in England. And if he is dead, his body is hidden in some corner of England.' He sat for hours smoking and thinking, trouble and gloomy thoughts leaving a dark shadow upon his moody face, which neither the brilliant light of the gas nor the red blaze of the fire could dispel. Very late in the evening he rose from his chair, pushed away the table, wheeled his desk over to the fireplace, took out a sheet of fool's cap, and dipped a pen in the ink. But after doing this he paused, leaned his forehead upon his hand, and once more relapsed into thought. I shall draw up a record of all that has occurred between our going down to Essex and to-night, beginning at the very beginning." He drew up this record in short, detached sentences, which he numbered as he wrote. It ran thus. Journal of facts connected with the disappearance of George Tallboys, inclusive of facts which have no apparent relation to that circumstance. In spite of the troubled state of his mind, he was rather inclined to be proud of the official appearance of this heading. He sat for some time looking at it with affection, and with the feather of his pen in his mouth. "'Upon my word,' he said, "'I begin to think that I ought to have pursued my profession, instead of dawdling my life away as I have done.' He smoked half a cigar before he had got his thoughts in proper train, and then began to write. "'One. I write to Alicia, proposing to take George down to the court. Two. Alicia writes, objecting to the visit, on the part of Lady Audley. 3. We go to Essex in spite of that objection. I see my lady. My lady refuses to be introduced to George on that particular evening on the score of fatigue. 4. Sir Michael invites George and me to dinner for the following evening. 5. My lady receives a telegraphic dispatch the next morning which summons her to London. 6. Alicia shows me a letter from my lady in which she requests to be told when I and my friend Mr. Tallboys mean to leave Essex. To this letter is subjoined a postscript, reiterating the above request. 7. We call at the court, and ask to see the house. My lady's apartments are locked. 8. We get at the aforesaid apartments by means of a secret passage, the existence of which is unknown to my lady. In one of the rooms we find her portrait. 9. George is frightened at the storm. His conduct is exceedingly strange for the rest of the evening. 10. George quite himself again the following morning. I propose leaving Audley Court immediately. He prefers remaining till the evening. 11. 
We go out fishing. George leaves me to go to the court. 12. The last positive information I can obtain of him in Essex is at the court, where the servant says he thinks Mr. Tallboys told him he would go and look for my lady in the grounds. 13. I receive information about him at the station, which may or may not be correct. 14. I hear of him positively once more at Southampton, where, according to his father-in-law, he had been for an hour on the previous night. 15. The Telegraphic Message When Robert Audley had completed this brief record, which he drew up with great deliberation, and with frequent pauses for reflection, alterations, and erasures, he sat for a long time contemplating the written page. At last he read it carefully over, stopping at some of the numbered paragraphs, and marking some of them with a pencil-cross. Then he folded the sheet of foolscap, went over to a cabinet on the opposite side of the room, unlocked it, and placed the paper in that very pigeonhole into which he had thrust Alicia's letter, the pigeonhole marked Important. Having done this, he returned to his easy-chair by the fire, pushed away his desk, and lighted a cigar. "'It's as dark as midnight from first to last,' he said and the clue to the mystery must be found either at Southampton or in Essex. Be it how it may, my mind is made up. I shall first go to Audley Court, and look for George Tallboys in a narrow radius. End of chapter 13 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.